the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people are one and speak all one language, and this they begin to do. Now nothing will be restrained from them which they imagine to do. Let us go down and confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them across the face of the earth. Genesis chapter 11, verses 5 through 8. This first series of my podcast began with a very wide scope. From the creation of the universe, I narrowed the focus down to a number of archaeological sites in the ancient Near East. This region will also be the focus of the second unit of this series, which will begin with the next episode. However, today I want to wander a little bit in terms of geography. The chronology of this series has brought us out of the deep past, out of the Stone Age, and down to the period roughly between 5,000 and 4,000 BC. Cities are just about to spring up along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and give birth to the ancient Sumerian culture. The Nile River is also simmering with human activity and architecture. Each of these two areas will develop fascinating cultures and contribute significantly to our Western traditions. There are other civilizations springing up around the world at this time as well, in India and China particularly, However, this podcast aims to describe Western history, not world history, so we must ignore those nascent urban cultures as we keep the spotlight on the Near East and begin slowly turning it in the direction of Europe. During this same time period, when Sumer and Egypt are coming to life, there was also an important development occurring to the north of these early civilizations, most likely in the region between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. I speak of the origin and rise of the Proto-Indo-Europeans. If they had not been so wildly successful in the later millennia following their origin in this time and place, if in fact they did not continue to be successful today in terms of linguistic and cultural descendants, the Proto-Europeans would probably be little more than a footnote in a history textbook. Today, though, nearly half of the world's total population speaks a language descended from the language that this late Neolithic people spoke. I will speak of their discovery, via a sort of linguistic archaeology, and the subsequent archaeological finds in a moment. But first, let's break down the interesting name of this prehistoric people. As you might imagine, they did not call themselves the Proto-Indo-Europeans. Like many of the names that I have thrown around in this podcast, that name was given to these people by modern researchers. Their name, however, was given to them before we even had any real physical evidence of their existence, when the only sign of their ancient presence was in the words that we use today in a variety of modern languages. But the discovery or realization that many modern languages are related to one another, even those that appear quite distinct, is something that I will relate in a moment. Let's get back to the name. The name Proto-Indo-European is the noun used to describe a people or a tribe. Prior to naming this elusive ancient tribe, the only knowledge of them that we had was our linguistic inheritance from them. Initially, we just knew that their language had spread across the Western world, as through many parts of Asia and the distant past as well. 
We named this language Indo-European because its linguistic descendants spread in prehistoric times from India in the east to the farthest western reaches of Europe. After this discovery, the term Proto-Indo-European came to be used to describe both the original language and the people who spoke it. But what is this linguistic discovery of which I speak? Let's start there. English speakers, when they learn other languages, frequently choose to study European languages, such as French, Spanish, or German. Something that always comes up in these fields of study is the concept of cognates, words which have the same meaning in both languages and are typically spelled in a very similar fashion, or at least sound the same. For example, in Spanish, eliminar, spelled E-L-I-M-I-N-A-R, means to eliminate in English. The spelling of the two verbs is very close. These cognates are often helpful in guiding students to learning foreign languages with proficiency because the meanings of the words are easy to recognize. This is not a concept unique to English speakers learning Romance languages like Spanish. All across Europe for centuries, people have recognized that most of the languages there have words in common. Initially, this was easy to explain. It was so easy that few people really speculated on the phenomenon. Rome had ruled most of Europe and the Mediterranean for many centuries, and these cognates, such as the one that I used as an, in the example, were obviously derived from Latin, the language of the Roman Empire. Furthermore, Greek had long been the common language of the Mediterranean basin, and many words had slipped from this ancient tongue into more modern languages, especially after the Greek classics were rediscovered during the Middle Ages. There were other curiosities, though. Why were some words apparently shared with the Nordic and Germanic languages? Of course, these northern languages had probably borrowed some Latin and Greek words and phrases over the course of their long and often fractious acquaintance with their southern neighbors. Still, this could not explain every apparent connection between these languages, otherwise so distinct in terms of vocabulary and geography. The mystery deepened in the 16th century. Europeans traveling through India and nearby regions noticed that the local languages also had words which had similar sounds and meanings when compared to the words of European languages. The vocabulary of Sanskrit, the ancient language of the Hindu religion in India in particular, contained several words which were similar in sound and meaning to those of languages in Europe. For example, the word for Latin, the word for father in Latin is pater, spelled P-A-T-E-R. In Sanskrit, the word is said pitar, rendered in our Western speech as P-I-T-A-R, though Sanskrit actually uses a different system of writing. Sanskrit uses the word sapta, S-A-P-T-A, to indicate the number seven. Latin uses the word septem, S-E-P-T-E-M. There are hundreds of words in Sanskrit that bear close relation to those words found in European languages. This seemed too great a coincidence, and the idea of a common ancestral language was soon postulated. The similarities increase when ancient languages of Europe, such as Latin and Greek, are examined. It took centuries for this phenomenon to be studied in depth and theories about causes to be developed. By the 20th century, researchers had come to the conclusion that most of the so-called native languages spoken today in this region, all the way from Ireland in the west to India in the east, are all actually descendants of a single language spoken by an ancestral tribe that probably existed sometime before or after 5000 BC in some region of Central Asia. There are a number of possibilities put forward as to the chronology of this people and their location, but most scholars believe that the homeland of the Indo-Europeans 
was somewhere between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, while holding a wide range of opinions regarding the timeline of the migration. This is a whole area of academic study on its own. Most, most important for our purposes in studying Western history is the culture and language of this ancient people. To be clear, it seems apparent to both linguists and historians that several thousand years ago, somewhere in Central Asia, most likely in the area situated near both the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, a large tribe of people sharing a language and a culture began to expand away from their homeland and migrate into new lands in all four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. As these groups of people, once closely connected by blood, culture, and language, spread out over the earth, and after thousands of years had passed, they became distinct nations and tribes with languages that were less and less intelligible to one another, but which still bore many similarities in their root words. The resulting languages, which today include Spanish, English, Swedish, Russian, Persian, Hindi, Bengali, and dozens of other languages, do not share a common system of writing because when the Proto-Indo-European expansion began out of Central Asia, this people did not possess the knowledge of writing, which would still not be invented for a thousand years or more farther south in the Middle East. Debate raged for a long time about the nature of this migration. Was it an exchange of language and culture that originated with the Proto-Indo-Europeans, as this mysterious ancient people is called? Did surrounding peoples acquire the language and culture of the Proto-Indo-Europeans, or was it a conquest? Did the Proto-Indo-Europeans expand aggressively and seize these surrounding lands, killing or enslaving the populations, as was the custom in war in the ancient world? Or was the spread of the Indo-European languages the result of both cultural appropriation and of conquest? Today, the evidence suggests much more strongly that the Proto-Indo-Europeans essentially wiped out the people who previously inhabited Europe when they arrived. And I would suspect the same thing happened when they moved into Asia, but I am not aware of research about this region, nor is it a part of our focus and the study of Western traditions. Nevertheless, while people today in Europe possess DNA from the most ancient inhabitants of that continent, most of the genetic makeup of native Europeans today is descended from these Indo-Europeans who arrived in waves several thousand years ago. As time passed and they branched out geographically over the map of Europe, their cultures and languages changed, but retained many points of similarity. This is why it was easy for the Romans, for example, to compare their gods to the gods of the Greeks, equating Jupiter with Zeus and Minerva with Athena. While the Roman ideas about divinity were definitely distinct from the Greeks, they were similar as well due to their common heritage, even if they were unaware at that time of that shared ancestry and the Indo-European lineage. But I have digressed into discussing more recent descendants of these Indo-Europeans. There will be plenty of time for that later, when we actually reach the episodes about the Greeks and the Romans. For now, let us consider what we can surmise about the culture and language of the Proto-Indo-Europeans, the original people that spoke the ancestor of the language that I am speaking now, and brought with them into Europe a variety of cultural traits and tools that would leave their mark on the land for thousands of years, right up until the present. Whenever and wherever they originated, the Proto-Indo-Europeans are most well known for having brought with them their language. Linguistic researchers comparing the numerous descendant languages of today and those known to have existed in the past, such as Latin, 
have actually come up with a possible version of the lost language of these people. This suggested language has its own vocabulary, its own grammar, syntax, and its own phonology, which is the way that a language actually sounds. For example, Proto-Indo-Europeans probably declined their, their nouns in several different cases, an idea which is probably foreign to most English speakers, but which any student of Latin would find very familiar. The idea is that nouns in a sentence would change their sound and spelling based on what function they served in the sentence. English speakers who learn Romance languages today may be familiar with verb conjugation. Uh, this is not the same as declining nouns, but it has similarities with regard to verb conjugation, depending on who is doing or receiving an action as in the sentence, the words used would change their sound. For example, in English, we have the phrase, I eat. In, Fran in French, you would say that, je mange. However, to say you eat in French, there is an additional sound added to the end of the phrase to indicate that a different person is eating. Vous mangez. With the declension of nouns, not only the verbs, but also the nouns would change depending on they were, whether they were performing the action, receiving the action, showing possession, or doing something else in the sentence. This is a fascinating subject, but as with many other intriguing topics that crop up during this podcast, I will leave it behind for those who want to study Latin or even Proto-Indo-European in depth and move on with our story of this ancient people. Anyway, this reconstruction of the ancient language is based on sources stretching from India to Western Europe, traced through the millennia back to the lost homeland of the Proto-Indo-Europeans. The resemblance to words found in Western European languages is an interesting topic to study. I have used Latin as an example, but there are many Proto-Indo-European root words that have passed down through thousands of years and survived even into modern English. For example, it is believed that male children among the ancient, this ancient people were called sonu, very close to our word son. You, the word used for the second person singular in English, was likely pronounced the same or very similarly in Proto-Indo-European. The examples go on and on, the greatest resemblances being found in words that involve specific subjects, such as family members, numbers, body parts, and so on. But it is not just in words so close to ourselves, our body parts, pronouns, and family members, in which Proto-Indo-European bears so much resemblance to English and many other modern-day Western languages. There are a few other subjects in which many words appear to have come down to us, and this handful of subjects may tell us a great deal about the culture of the Proto-Indo-Europeans. Modern Western languages inherited words from the original Indo-European language that described certain animals, certain tools, and certain aspects of agricultural and pastoral life that probably defined that the way that they lived. Using these words that they have passed down to us, we can make some surmises about the type of life that the Proto-Indo-Europeans led. They lived, we know, on the steppes of central Eurasia. Steppes are open, grassy tracts of land interrupted by the occasional tree or shrub. These lands are generally too dry to permit the growth of forest, but they are not so dry as to become a desert. The climate experiences cold winters and hot summers. The Proto-Indo-Europeans were farmers and pastoralists on this open land. They had words specifically used for the animals and tools that they used in such a life. A bull was a tauros, and if you have learned any Romance languages or read Greek mythology, you should hear that familiar tor sound like the minotaur, the famous half-man, half-bull that Theseus confronted. The sound might also bring to mind the way that bulls are called toro in Spanish. 
they used the word wane for wagon, and we continued to use that word nearly up until the present. A man that fixed or built wagons a century or two ago was known as a Wainwright. Since many of our ancestors acquired their last names from the jobs that they performed, there are still among us many people named Wainwright, part of their name coming down all those thousands of years, passing through countless lands and cultures to remain a part of their identity today. The relationship between words and ancient Proto-Indo-European and the Romance languages of Europe are easiest to see, but English also has several points of similarity with its ancestor language, though it is less obvious today than it would have been a few hundred years ago when almost all of us were farmers and still using Proto-Indo-European root words about farming and herding animals in our daily language. On the subject of religion, the Proto-Indo-Europeans called their god Skyfather, and they probably pronounced it as something similar to Deus Pater. Here, from the Proto-Indo-European word for sky, we get the word for God familiar in many Romance languages, Dios in Spanish, or Deus in Latin, or Theo in Greek. And of course, the word for father, Pater, passed down virtually unchanged over thousands of years into Latin. Now, the story of how Pater became father in English and how other words transformed over the millennia is an interesting one, but sufficient for its own very lengthy podcast. You should check out Kevin Stroud's History of English podcast for more information and a very compelling story if you are interested in the topic. So, what else can we determine about this ancient culture based on the words that they have passed down to us? We know that they were a people who had progressed into the late Neolithic Age and moved sometime during their expansion into the Bronze Age. This may have helped them as their tribe grew and they expanded into lands already occupied by hunter-gatherers and or by Neolithic farmers. I should stop to clarify something, though. When I speak about the expansion of Proto-Indo-Europeans, I am not speaking about an empire or any sort of organized, centrally controlled conquest. There is no evidence to suggest that this happened. Instead, most historians think that this was simply the expansion, in all directions, of different groups of people who shared a common ancestry and culture, but there was no commanding general or king directing attacks like would happen much later in history with Sargon the Great or Alexander of Macedon or Genghis Khan. It was most likely an unplanned and essentially unorganized series of movements that happened over many centuries as a result of population growth. The Proto-Indo-Europeans were a patriarchal people as well. In general, human cultures are either matriarchal or patriarchal. Sometimes the terms used are patrilineal or matrilineal because contrary to popular belief, the real issue at stake is lineage, not deciding who is in charge. There are and were plenty of matrilineal cultures in which men and women had quite traditional roles, as we would call them, and men were essentially regarded as leaders, just as they were in patrilineal cultures. However, the difference is that in matrilineal cultures, they are called that matrilineal because children are known by their mother and not by their father. It would be like being known as the son of our mother rather than our father's. That may not be an easy concept for a modern English speaker to recognize or grasp, but Understand that we live today, most likely thanks to the Proto-Indo-Europeans, in a patrilineal culture. Your last name is that of your father. You are known primarily by being his descendant, though there are exceptions. In matrilineal cultures, even if they did not have last names as we do, men and women are known by their mother and trace their descent through their mothers. As living examples, there are Native American tribes today that are matrilineal, such as the Hopi tribe found in Arizona in the United States. 
It should not be denied, however, that the culture of the Proto-Europeans was also probably patriarchal in the traditional sense as well, meaning that men were very much in charge. For instance, while the religious pantheons of all the descendant cultures of the Proto-Indo-Europeans, such as the Hindus, the Greeks, the Romans, and the Norse, contain both men and women, there is no doubt that it is the male figures who are the most powerful. And masculine power was not expressed only in spiritual terms. Take, for example, the Romans, a people of Indo-European descent, who we will study in the third series of this podcast, probably in a couple of years. There existed an ancient custom among the Romans that was reserved to the paterfamilias, which simply means father of the family. The leading male of a household held supreme power and could legally sell his children into slavery or even kill them without repercussion. While there is no evidence that these consequences were ever really or regularly carried out, just the open existence of such a practice in theory should tell us something about the distinct patriarchal nature of Indo-European cultures. In many other Indo-European cultures, women were historically treated as either second-class citizens, unable to own property or participate in politics, or were even reduced to simply being a particular type of property. So where did the Proto-Indo-Europeans go? What was the nature of this expansion? From wherever they originated in Central Eurasia, sometime around 4000 BC, the Proto-Indo-Europeans began to expand from their ancestral homeland. They must have been a particularly successful tribe. It seems like their population grew considerably, and they expanded in all directions, though they did not meet with 100% success in all their migrations. Going north was always going to be difficult due to the climate. Northward lay the Arctic, but that did not stop the Indo-Europeans from migrating in that direction. Around 3000 BC, a people now known only as the Corded Ware Culture arrived in northern Europe and in the heartland of what we now know as Russia. They would eventually become the Nordic or Proto-Germanic peoples, traveling as far north as the southern portion of Sweden. Modern archaeologists call them the corded ware people due to the remains of their pottery, which typically had cord-like impressions on its exterior as a form of artistic ornamentation. Farther west, the Bell Beaker culture appears at roughly the same time in places like Western Germany, France, Britain, and Ireland. In geographic and chronological terms, this westward expansion was the most successful for the Proto-Indo-Europeans. They covered as much distance as they possibly could in that direction, reaching the Atlantic Ocean, and remained there essentially until the present day. It is most likely, though hard to determine for certain, that these same people developed over the millennia that passed between the late Neolithic and the early Bronze Age and the Iron Age into the ancient cultures known to to us today as the Celts, or they were absorbed by the Celts at a later date. This group of Indo-Europeans that reached Western Europe is, like the corded ware culture, also named for some of its distinctive pottery, among the remains of which there are many cups shaped like an upside-down bell, hence the name. In keeping with an infrequently mentioned sub-theme of this podcast, the bell beaker cups appear to have been used primarily for drinking alcohol, once again showing that this beverage has often been at the forefront of cultural and technological progress in human history. There were southern migrations as well, The Latin speakers who eventually founded Rome in the 8th century BC were Indo-Europeans, as well as the Greeks, 
who settled the lands around the Aegean Sea and its islands, as well as the Anatolian Peninsula, in multiple waves prior to and after 1000 BC. Researchers believe that the Hittites, who took over much of Anatolia, which you can think of as modern-day Turkey, were also Indo-Europeans. And we know for certain that the Iranians are descendants of the Proto-Indo-Europeans due to the many similar words found both in Persian and in many Western European languages. And as mentioned before, the Aryan invasion of northern India, which probably began around 2000 BC, was almost certainly an Indo-European migration. To the east, the Indo-European expansion is a little more mysterious, though it may have covered a great deal of ground in geographic terms. As early as 3500 BC, a Proto-Indo-European culture, now known as the Afanasievo, had reached the western borders of China. Going forward, however, our concern will primarily be with those people whose migrations led them into Europe, that is, once we actually get to European history. Prior to that, this podcast will, over the course of the next 15 to 20 episodes, cover the ancient cultures of the Middle East, especially those against whom the Indo-Europeans apparently made no headway, such as the Sumerians and the Egyptians. But let's get back to these Indo-European migrants. You might ask, how do we really know that the corded ware people of Europe and the bell beaker people farther west and south were actually Indo-Europeans? After all, there was no writing at this time, and we have no way of knowing for certain what kind of language these people spoke. With the Latins and the Greeks, the relationship is easier to see because we have similar vocabularies, similar sounds in their words, even if the alphabets are distinct. But our certainty about the Greeks and the Latins and their relationship to the Proto-Indo-Europeans could also be challenged with the simple suggestion that they may have received their languages from the Indo-Europeans, but were not actually related to that semi-legendary tribe that may have inhabited Central Asia 7,000 years ago. However, Modern-day researchers no longer depend entirely on the linguistic connection to prove the Proto-Indo-European heritage of modern Europeans. No, there is much stronger evidence that all of these people, the Greeks, the Latins, and even the people of the corded ware and bell beaker cultures, were all related to each other and to the original Proto-Indo-Europeans. The evidence is in their blood. Genetic science has come a long way in the last few decades. When the Human Genome Project was launched in 1990, little was known for certain about the human genome, this latter word meaning the entire genetic makeup of a human being. Yes, genetic scientists knew what DNA looked like and knew something about how it worked, but no one had a complete roadmap of the DNA of even a single human being. With the given technology and knowledge of the time, it was an immense project, and many ridiculed it as being almost impossible. By 2003, however, even though the initial progress had been incredibly slow, the job was done. The complete structure and content of an average human genome was known, even if we did not understand exactly how everything worked. Since then, genetic science has continued to advance in leaps and bounds. For the purposes of this episode, the most important achievement has to do with the identification of something called haplogroups. Haplogroups are portions of DNA in a creature's genetic makeup which tend to remain intact as they are passed down from parent to offspring. They are not single strands of DNA or single genes, but rather whole clumps of DNA which, for whatever reason, rarely lose their integrity when children are conceived and receive their parents' genetic contributions. 
Generally, the haplogroups most studied are those of the Y chromosome, which only men possess and which are passed down from father to son, and the mitochondrial DNA of human cells, which are passed down to both men and women, but which are received exclusively from the mother. Since these haplogroups appear the same, that is, they contain the same type of DNA, the same particular combinations of genes in parents and children, it is possible to study relationships between people. This is one way in which paternity tests can be done. However, it can also be used to study our ancient ancestors, both to determine our ancestry, as has become popular in recent years, and to determine the relationship of entire ancient populations. When scientists find similar haplogroups in the remains of ancient people separated by time or geography, they can reasonably posit that they were related genetically, branches of the same tree, that they had once been one people and become separated by geography and time due to migration. It turned out, after comparing the genes of modern Europeans and those found in the remains of the corded ware people and the bell beaker culture, that the present native populations of Europe are by and large descendants of those earlier populations. They not only speak the languages given to them by their ancient ancestors, but continue to carry their DNA. These Proto-Indo-Europeans were quite successful then in preserving both their cultural heritage and their genetic legacy. And it is not just Europe and Asia where the languages and genes of this ancient culture have spread. Many people in North and South America and in Australia and other regions continue to speak Indo-European languages as their primary language and preserve Indo-European bloodlines. And Indo-European languages are spoken as primary or secondary languages by many non-Indo-European people such as those living in the Americas and in Africa. Eventually, we will get back to the Indo-Europeans, beginning with the ancient Greeks, However, to understand our Western traditions best, we must pay heed to the peoples of the Middle East who first developed civilization. That is, the capacity for building and living in cities, in urban environments, and who brought into the world some of the fundamental ideas and stories to which we still refer in our everyday lives. These are the cultures of ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt. The time and place in which the pyramids and the ziggurats of nearly forgotten despots will rise from desert sands and inspire stories such as that of the Tower of Babel referenced at the beginning of this episode. The Jews of the Old Testament also have their origin here, perhaps 4,000 years ago. Their interactions with the civilizations of the Middle East will eventually be chronicled and handed down, and Europeans such as Dante Alighieri and others will memorialize them alongside figures and stories from the touchstone of Western history. The Christian tradition. This is the end of the first unit of the first series in this podcast. It dealt with the prehistory of the human race, a time before writing, before cities, before many of the things that we now consider fundamental to life. Beginning with the very beginning, with the origin of the universe, and ending with the transition out of the Stone Age and into the rise of the first cities. The next unit of maybe 20 episodes, as previously mentioned, will cover the history of the ancient Middle East. The first episode will be short and simply introduce the time period and the place. But until then, thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.